we're going to dive in to our teaching today. And in our weight series, we have explored the life of an, the lives of a number of different people. We've talked about Abraham, the, the father of the, the Judeo-Christian faith, the one who left everything that was known and went out into the unknown, waiting on God to fulfill his promises. We talked about Joseph, who is, is the son of, of Jacob. He's, uh, so there's Abraham, then his son Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob had a number of sons. One of them was Joseph. We talked about him, how in the waiting we find such purpose. We're not just idle in the waiting. We're actually fully alive and participant in God's plan and purposes as we wait, which is a refreshing thing to hear in days like this. This week, we find ourselves talking about Moses. Most people know the name Moses. They know who he is. And we're going to dive into his life for a little while today. We're going to look at it. We're going to explore some of the other characters that live in the narrative of Moses' life and had a huge impact on it. The, the phrase, when your heart's on fire. Like, do, do you remember that feeling? Do you remember that feeling maybe when... Um, when, when you were with someone you love or someone you thought you might love one day and, and you, there was an attraction there and, and, and you see them and your heart kind of burns and you want to tell them I like you a super lot, but all you can do is be like, fine, but they didn't ask how you are and then it's awkward, right? Like when someone says hi and you're like, fine, because maybe your heart's a little, you know, in fuego and you're just like, oh, it burns a little in you. Maybe you've seen something and your, your heart burns for it. An issue, a topic, a justice. Um, I know this, when our heart's on fire, it's this, this passion. It can almost be um, like a drive, an ambition, right? Your heart's on fire. You're into something a lot and you really want to drive towards it. Uh, when your heart's on fire, it can all often manifest itself when your heart is burning with passion or ambition. It can, it can manifest itself as the courage to act and do something without, as we would say at the foundry, guaranteed outcomes. You're going to act and you're going to do something not knowing how it'll turn out, but you're going to do it because it's a passion. Your heart's on fire. When we look at that and we see that hearts being on fire is, is a real thing, emotions come into it and we just kind of ignite and it leans into us. When our hearts burn within us, it is one of the most natural things in the world to respond, isn't it? And sometimes our response isn't great, but sometimes we're able to do the thing that in our response we've wanted to do. Today, we're gonna talk about what it looks like when our hearts burn within us and we were like profoundly moved to act. And it's gonna walk us through Exodus one and two. Then we're gonna get to Exodus three and talk more about Moses. But we have to look at other people first to get the full scope of the story. When our hearts burn within us, it is natural to respond. This happened to a number of people in the life of Moses. Before Moses was born, the Hebrew people had been in the land of Egypt where Joseph brought his family. There were 70 of them then. When Moses comes on the scene, there's, oh, there's millions of them. They're everywhere. 
and the Egyptians had enslaved them, trying to keep them contained and trying not to let them overpower them just by numbers as a people. God was with the, the Hebrew people. And so Pharaoh put out a law that every, firstborn, every male born to the Hebrew people is to be put to death. Every male is to be put to death. And there are two women whose hearts burned within them, and they responded. Their names should be remembered, they should be heralded and held up. Shipra and Pua, the midwives, the women who would deliver babies to the, to the Hebrew people, Shipra and Pua would not obey the king's, Pharaoh's command. They would not do it. They were subversive in how they handled his command. They were brave because they could have lost their lives for this, but they would not put to death the, first, the male-born uh, children of Israel when they were born. And even Pharaoh called them in, and he's like, what's going on? All these boy babies are around. What's happening? And they said, we're sorry. The Hebrew women are more vigorous than the Egyptian women, and when they give birth, they do so quickly. By the time we're there, it's over. We've missed our chance. They would not deliver the babies to death. They were brave. And they had a burning within them that said, I, I, their calling in life was to bring life into the world, not take it once it entered the world. And they fought for that. Then there's a woman named Jochebed. And this is an important character. She was Moses' mom. Imagine being a mom in a day and age when they said that baby you just delivered has to be put to death, but she wouldn't do it, so she kept the little baby. Now, if any of you have had kids, you know that generally the first few months they're quiet and they're snuggly. They're like a heat, like a hot water bottle. You can just like fall asleep with them on you. They're just tiny and awesome, but about three months in, they start finding their voice in their lungs, and they can let a screech out that's pretty loud, and she could no longer hide hide baby Moses. So she did what she had to do. She fashioned a basket and she covered it in pitch. And I can imagine she made it comfortable on the inside. She put a lid on it and set her three-month-old son into it and then floated it out to the Nile, the Nile River, full of crocodiles, hippos. It's a dangerous place. And she floated her little boy out there. Her passion and her love for her baby and God made her brave. She did the only thing she could do. She couldn't put him to death, so she put him into the waters, trusting that God would take care of him. There is baptismal theology in that that just, we can't go into it. But think about that, and I've said it before. What God loves, he puts into the waters. And we really take that from this scripture and this story. Jochebed, because she loved God, and she trusted him, and she loved her son, she did the most difficult thing. She put him out into his hands. And it takes us to the next person in this story. Little Miriam, Moses' older sister. Now, any of you who have an older sister know what it's like to be mothered twice, right? I have a daughter, Bella Boo, and she, uh, when, when Ethan was a newborn, she was a little girl, and I remember coming home one day, and Erica kind of was like, we have changed 
a lot of outfits because Bella was just like, hey, Bubbers, and she was changing him. She wanted to be, it was instinctive. She was protective of Ethan. To this day, she is. If someone speaks ill of Ethan, she has none of it, right? She's going to fight for him and defend him. She loves him. Miriam. Miriam was like that. And when Jochebed, Moses' mom, put the basket into the waters, who was alongside the bank in the reeds and the bulrushes watching her little brother as he goes down the river and following him along, making sure he's okay, not worried about her own safety, but following her little brother in that basket, seeing what happens. We'll come back and circle back to Miriam in a minute because now we need to talk about Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, the king who made the law to kill the Hebrew baby boys, was going down to the Nile to wash. She gets to the Nile just as a little basket kind of floats in the current into the eddy where she's, um, where she's bathing. And she sees the basket. She sends her servants. They open it. And she picks up the child. He's crying. See, now the, oh, sorry about that, now, the, um, now the, the law that was passed by her dad uh, doesn't seem so abstract. It's not just Hebrew babies. She's holding one of these pink, soft, you know, I picture him bald and just cute as can be, little babies. And she holds him up and he's crying and she takes him to her chest and she's like, oh, it's not just a law to kill the babies anymore. Now she's holding one of these little boys. And she's like, this is one of those Hebrew baby boys. I should take him and raise him, but he needs to be nursed. Enter Miriam. Little Miriam, hiding in the reeds, pops out and goes, I, I know a Hebrew lady who would, who would nurse him for you, if you'd like. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, take the baby to this woman. Have her nurse him, and I will pay you wages to, to nurse him and feed him and get him to health. And for the next three to four years, Moses' mom was paid by the house of Pharaoh to raise Moses to a point where he was weaned. Once weaned, he was delivered to Pharaoh's daughter where he was raised as a prince in the court of Pharaoh. These stories are pinnacle moments where we must act, where we must act, and it is part of God's plan. They are dangerous, frightening, overwhelming things, but they come and go. They move through our lives. These pinnacle moments move through our lives, and we must act, but we can't live there. We can't live in those extremes all the time. If we only feel close to God, if we only have if we're only close to God when we can feel it, well, then we're not close to God. We have a relationship with God at that point that is similar to our relationship to a love song. Feels good, it evokes something, but there's no depth there. We can't just be close to God when we feel it. We have to be in relationship, connected, and know him. Let's talk now for Moses. Let's jump ahead in Moses' life. Let's say he's in his late 30s, 39 years old. He's been raised in the house of Pharaoh. He knows the, the Pharaonic laws. He knows the culture of Egypt. He is a leader in that, in that community, in that nation, in that empire. He's a big deal. But he also knows he's one of the Hebrews, 
at this point because we see Moses looking out one day as he's walking through and they enslaved the Hebrew people and were brutal to them. They built all the great works of Egypt under the yoke of slavery. And Moses walks out one day and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses is on fire at this point. Moses knows that he is supposed to do something. He has a heart for justice, and he's going to do something about it. So what he does is he goes and he kills the Egyptian who's beating the Hebrew. Upon doing this, he realizes, oh, man, i got to do something about this. So he buries the Egyptian in the sand. Moses was on fire. He had a heart for justice. He had a heart for um, reconciliation and justice for the people of God and his family by bloodline, and he was going to do this. It was running through him, and we see it in what he did to the Egyptian. The next, like in the next short season, we know that Moses comes out and encounters two Hebrew slaves fighting one another, and Moses comes up, and he goes to break up the fight, and he's like, what are you guys doing? Don't fight one another. And they say back to him, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did the Egyptian? What? (laughs) Can you imagine? Like he thinks he did this in secret. And they're like, what are you going to murder us like you did the Egyptian? And he's like, oh my goodness. And he kind of freaks out because he knows that someone else knows. So he flees. He flees. And he goes out into the deserts of Midian. He's 40 years old. His passions have driven him to act time and again, and it'll happen yet one more time. He stops at a well. Seven daughters come, seven daughters of of the priest of Midian, come to get water at the well. When they're there, some shepherds show up and start tormenting, heckling, and kind of abusing these daughters. Moses, being filled with justice and a fiery heart for that topic, stands up and puts the shepherds to flight. I mean, he puts a beat on them. He lays it out, and he's like, no, and he drives them away. The daughters end up inviting them home, inviting Moses home, where he meets their father, and their father gives the, one of the daughters to him in marriage. So we see this. He murders, a, he murders an Egyptian. He tries to break up a fight between Hebrews. Then when some girls are in trouble, he runs out and breaks it up, gets them, drives off the people who are being mean to him, ends up marrying one of the girls. And that's where we find ourselves at this point when the fire slowly starts dying out in Moses' life. He goes from his first 40 years in, the, in a miracle childhood into a pharaonic, you know, like Egyptian court upbringing to, um, to an activist, to a revolutionary of sorts, now driven into the deserts where for the next 40 years, his home will kind of fall away from memory. And that first third of his life will drift as he begins to live in a new reality. I invite you. Join me, Exodus 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. It says this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to where, to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the, fire, the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. 
when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him. And from within the bush, he said, Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, it's this beautiful little phrase. It's one of my favorites. It's always very evocative for me emotionally, but I love it. It's Hanene. Hanene, that's what Moses said. Here I am. It would have been Hanene, here I am. Moses, Moses. Hanene, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing. It is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good land, a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I, God's saying, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign that, to you that it is I who have, given, who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Remember, he's at the mountain of Horeb. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is the name, what is his name? What then shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. In Hebrew, this is very significant because actually the sound of God's name, what this I am name is, um, it, we would say it's Yahweh, but it's the sound of breathing. It's the sound of air in and air out. I am who I am. This is who, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Oh, that's a big conversation for Moses to have at a burning bush. But it makes perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense to me that God would appear to Moses through fire. Because Moses' had fire, Moses' fire in his heart, his heart for justice, his burning heart for that, it seems like it had gone out. Look at his response to God's plan and weigh his response to God's plan off of how he acted when he was younger. What if they don't believe me? That's his first response. What if they don't believe me? I can't speak well. That's his next thing. I'm not, I'm not great with, you know, with words here. I've been alone with sheep for 40 years in the deserts of Midian. Um, I'm not the best with words. You know what, God? Just send someone else. Send someone else, not me. Don't send me into this. I think his fire went out. I think the, the, the fire inside of Moses had gone 
out, at least the visible evidence of it. I think it is not a coincidence that God used fire to get Moses' attention. Moses used to run red hot. He murdered an Egyptian. He broke up fights with with the Hebrews, and he drove off the other people who were trying to heckle these girls he didn't even know, these women he didn't even know, but his fire, oh, that red hot justice, it just dwindled down. I don't know about you, if you've ever been camping and, um, you, le- you stoke the fire up before you go to bed and you wake up at like three in the morning and it's all burned down and it's just coals and it's kind of cold and you can maybe see some glowing embers but the fire was out. I think that's where Moses was at. The fire had died. There was nothing visible about it anymore. And when the time came for action, he was hesitant. He was insecure. He made excuses. He didn't believe in himself any longer. He wasn't confident of his own instincts. This great leader couldn't really put together a reason why he didn't want to obey God other than just anybody but me was his answer. Moses had lost all confidence in himself, but he should not, and you should not, lose confidence in God and his purposes and plans for the life he called you to live. It may seem beyond what you could imagine, Trust me, being a pastor was beyond what I could imagine when God called me to it. For Moses, it was was this thing of like, I can't even imagine it anymore. All this youthful vim and vigor and passion and burning heart had only ended up driving him out into a wilderness. Guys, he's 80 years old at this point. At 80 years old, most of us are either somewhat like retired for a while or really planning on getting out of the workforce and God was just getting ready to use him. When Moses thought all was lost, God was finally ready to get to work because sometimes waiting is the furnace. It is the refiner's fire. It is the thing that most transforms us. Moses ended up working in the desert for 40 years years. So first 40 years in the courts of Pharaoh, under the, like, you know, the, all the pomp and circumstance of royalty. The next 40 years in the desert, he had a family, a steady job of livestock. He was kind of a, you know, an ancient rancher and no fights. There were no fights to start or to stop. He was just a shepherd. You know, I think for him, life had turned to the mundane. He knew what was going to happen. He just had to take the next step. Nothing real exciting, no great fights to have, no great things to save, just the next step of making sure the flock was okay. He was in that point. Did he remember, like do you ever wonder about stories like this of over the 40 years, if he even remembered what it was like to feel that passion, that drive, that desire to heal what was broken, to do justice for those mistreated, to be an influencer of culture, of life, and have that youthful drive? There's nothing quite like that youthful drive. When our kids come home from their freshman year of college saying, did you know? And many of us go, yeah, I knew. I was a freshman in college too. But their eyes have been opened maybe to a bigger world. When we see these kinds of things happen, we remember what it's like to have youthful passions. Do you wonder if Moses ever looked back and was like, yeah, I remember wanting to save my people. But I'm a shepherd in a desert. 
I believe God was winnowing away, taking away, slowly kind of, when winnowing is a farming term. And when you, would, when you would take grain in, like wheat, you would take it and you would beat the grain and the, the seed would separate from the chaff. Then you would take a broad pitchfork and you'd throw it in the air. The seeds are heavier, they'll drop. And the winnowing process is when the chaff and the stalk float away in the wind. God was winnowing, separating from Moses that little seed, that identity that he put into him that would be so life-giving from all the rest. God was winnowing away his own motives and desires. Moses had motives and desires. Moses had passion. He had a burning heart, but not anymore. God, over the last 40 years of his life, has winnowed away all his um, internal combustion and drive and for this, justice. But God had put that in there. And God was doing that so that Moses could be God's man, not his own man. Let this ring in our ears. You are called to be God's man or God's woman, not your own. It's part of the Heidelberg Catechism, that confession of faith that we who in the Protestant Reformed world, we uphold. And that question, number one, I mean, it's just the best opening punch ever. What is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his blood and death on the cross and resurrection redeemed me. Do we get that? I am not my own. You are not called to be the best you. You are not called to be the best man or woman you can be. You are called to be the man or woman God made you to be. You are supposed to be God's man or God's woman in this season, in this world, at this time. It's the only time we get to influence other souls towards the gospel. God's man. That's what God was doing in Moses for 40 years. He was creating God's man, not his own man. So let me ask you this. Are you on fire? Are you on fire or are you a little bit more the pile of coals? Maybe um, you once felt a calling in your life, but now because God made you wait, it's just kind of died out. The fire's died down. The passion has gone because the reality never materialized. Let me ask you a question. Well, let me make a statement instead of a question. Maybe, just maybe, God was doing something in you during this waiting time where some of your dreams have died, but maybe they haven't died in God's eyes. They're just different than what your dreams were. Like Moses trying to redeem the Israelites by his own power. And how bad did that work out? But God would use him when he had stripped all his passion away. God would use him in faithful obedience So maybe God has been stripping away your motives and your desires. And I will tell you this, these are real things. So I'll just be real honest. Some of these are mine that God has stripped away in me. Maybe he's stripping away your desire for fame, to be known, to be important. Did you know in our culture, it is more important to be famous, 
like if if you look at like research on this, Barna and different things, like the younger generations value fame over finances. They don't care so much about being rich. I think they're going to live with us forever. Um, but they care more about fame, about being known, about being an influencer, someone who is sought after, someone who is recognized and seen. Maybe God is stripping away your desire for fame. Maybe he's stripping away your desire for security. Oh, man, this one's mine. I want to be secure. I want to be secure. I want to make sure I can protect me and my own. I want to do those things, right? You want to make sure there's food and there's enough money and there's a safe house and you're going to do whatever you can for security. Maybe you do this for status so that when you walk into a room, people go, okay, well, I'm going to defer because they're number one, right? They're the top dog. Maybe you want status, a sense of um, importance, and God has been stripping that away. Maybe you want power. Man, power is, oh, I, I don't know many pe- I, people who watch it, but like the show Survivor, when someone gets a little bit of power and they are someone who has the opportunity to steer things, Power can go to people's head so quickly. I believe it was Abraham uh, Lincoln who said this. Don't ever judge a man's character. Uh, this is a kind of a, my own transliteration of it. Don't judge a man's character by how he goes through difficult times. Judge his character by what he does when he's got power. When he has influence, when he has power, then we see the true character of the man or the woman. Power. Maybe God stripped away your desire for power. Maybe... You have wanted to be loved all your life, and you have given yourself, your emotions, your person for the effort of being loved all your life. And God has stripped away that feeling so that you can know he alone actually loves you without agenda. He just loves you. God just loves you. Maybe your desire is to be included. Maybe you've lived on the fringes of, of groups or, or gatherings or never feeling fully included in, in a bunch of people and you feel isolated and alone and you just want to be included. And God's saying, no, come home to me. You're included. All are welcome in Jesus Christ and you've sought to be included in all these places. But God has been winnowing away your desire for fame, security, status, power, love, and being included for one reason, so he could use you for his plan. Maybe he hasn't given all these things we so desperately wanted, not because he doesn't love us, but because he knew what we would do with it. Maybe God's love for us has allowed you and I to have to wait so that we could be used for his plan. Now that you don't have confidence in you, now that you've waited long enough, now that I have waited long enough, I'm not confident in me like Moses, right? He wasn't confident in himself. He was confident in God. Maybe your confidence is only in God. Remember the miracle zone, we talked about it, where you get to this point where if God doesn't get involved, it is gonna be a garbage fire disaster. Maybe, just maybe, at that point, We quit being confident in what we can do and we trust that God is involved. God is at work regardless if if we're 80 or 18. God has a plan and a purpose. He did give you gifts. He did give you abilities. He did give you passion. He did give you hopes. And they have to be refined by his Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit of God has to refine those gifts, hopes, abilities, and desires so that they can be used for his glory. Moses indeed would rescue the entire Hebrew nation. He would protect them, but not how he first thought he would. Moses thought he would use his upbringing in the pharaonic Egyptian royal court to liberate his people. That's not how it worked. That's not how it worked at all. He would do it as an aged, weary, leathery, like think of it, 40 years in the, in the Middle Eastern sun guarding sheep. The dude had to be a little tan as an old, leathery, aged outsider who called down plagues and used his staff to part waters, who would write the law of God at God's command, alone on a mountain communing with God, almighty God. God's ways are higher than ours. The question is, do we believe that even in the waiting, God is actually refining out of us the things that would break his purposes so that the true identity that he put into us when he knit us together in our mother's womb, that that identity would come to fruition, that that identity would spring to life. God's ways are higher than ours. Friends, I encourage you, if you're in a season of waiting where your dreams and passions have died, I would say you're on the cusp of doing something amazing with God for his glory, and you get to just celebrate the fact that you're a part of Almighty God's plans. Take heart. Have hope and know that all these things you've waited for, all those dreams that have died, haven't died. God just hasn't brought to fruition his plan. Wait on the Lord. Participate with him on his terms, not yours. Pray with me. God, thank you for Moses. Thank you for the life he lived and the way he works, he lived and the way that you work in and through his story for your glory. Thank you that he was scared, insecure, and overwhelmed by, by your inviting him to redeem the, Israel, the people of Israel from Pharaoh. Thank you that he was no longer confident in himself. Lord, I do pray, little fearfully even, take away any of us and make it all you. Winnow away those things of us that seek to exalt ourselves against you, God, and call us, call us into your plan, your purposes for your glory, both in this season and for generations to come. May we be people who live lives that leave a harvest of righteousness even while we wait. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand, you can sit, but we're going to sing together. Join me. As we get ready to go, I just want to circle back to one thing. This is not easy, what we're going through. Locally, regionally, nationally, globally, it's hard. It's frightening. It's overwhelming. And you don't have to be okay. If you're struggling, I invite you, go to our website, foundrychurch.net, Go down to the COVID response page and just ask for someone to call. You can talk. It's confidential and it'll just help. It'll help. You don't have to hold it all in. You don't have to be okay. It's one of the lines Matt Chandler uses that I love so much. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. Please don't feel like you're alone in this. 
we're all in this together. We just think we're alone because we're apart. But we are not alone. It's okay to talk to somebody. We would love to spend some time with you. Some of the members of our pastoral care team and our staff are on those phones. And they'll call you and we'll have those conversations. Waiting isn't easy. But God went ahead of us as a church. He went ahead of us. This book was put together months ago. God went ahead of us knowing we'd be waiting. And we're going to need to be brave, church, and believe and trust that those things he called us to do and be, his word doesn't change. His calling isn't revoked. And we're going to be doing some new and wonderful things as a church, reaching the world different platforms, different ways of gathering. The question is this, do we believe that God will bring about his plans and purposes even if it's hard on us? I would say this, God will bring about his plans and his purposes and it'll be hard on us because we die to Christ to fully live in Christ. Us, we have to die in order that he may fully live. So our dreams, our passions, our desires will fade but everybody knows the name of Moses because God used him in his time. Everybody will know the name of Jesus if we will allow God to use us in his time. It's not easy, but man, it's good. It's really good. Church, the vision hasn't changed. The purpose hasn't changed. It's okay. It's okay to be having a hard time but it's also more than okay to trust and let God use you in this time for his glory and his purposes. So I invite you, church, wait faithfully on the Lord. Wait faithfully on the Lord. And let's see what he does to make Jesus known in this world. Thank you again for joining us today from wherever you are. And know this, the plans and purposes that, God's ha- that God has for you will not be revoked. Live faithfully in the calling he has given. Live faithfully as you wait and act in faith. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Church, I know we're still waiting to get back together, but we are together in one spirit for the purpose and glory of one name, the Lord Jesus Christ. In all you do, in all you say, in all you are, go and live for that name. At this time, the church leaves the building, even though it's an online structure. So, hey, bless you. Thank you for joining us. We are out. See you next week.